Continuing in our summer series from the book of Acts, which is the story of the earliest days of the church after the the resurrection of Jesus, we're reading from Acts 19, verses 11 through 20. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them quickly and publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, teach me, Lord, that I may teach the precious things thou dost impart, and wing my words that they may reach the hidden depths of many a heart. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. It was great to be back in worship last Sunday after a three-week vacation on Swans Island, Maine, where Maggie and I have gone for seven of the last ten summers. Some of you have seen more pictures of our vacation on Facebook than I even knew were being taken. (laughs) But you have told me that it looks like we had a wonderful time, and we did. Everyone who finds a place of beauty in which they can know respite is blessed. We have come to know such blessing through the people, the place, and the pace found on this island of about 300 people whose families make their living fishing for lobster plus a few hundred summer people. It was also wonderful to come back to the calling of an associate pastor, the meeting in which a congregation calls someone to whom they entrust to bear the title and role of pastor is a moving experience for Presbyterians. We had that experience over a decade ago when we called Patrick and then we called Casey Fitzgerald. We had it two and a half years ago when we called Whitney. And we had it last Sunday when we called Jacob 
Bolton. I was proud of so much last Sunday. The associate pastor nominating committee and the process that they followed and the presentation they made. Jacob for the way he met people and led worship. And most of all, I was proud of you for the path on which we embarked four years ago to expand our ministry through this four-pastor model, for the financial commitment you made to it, for everyone's patience over the changes and the time it has taken to unfold. But I was proud most of all for you for the worship attendance last Sunday. For the number of you who stayed for the congregational meeting and for the questions you asked and the comments you made. It was a great Sunday on which to return from vacation and you played a huge part in making it a joyful return. But now we're back for two more Sundays on Acts. And given that today's sermon concerns evil... And next week's sermon concerns disagreement. We may feel like we are being drawn back into weeping that tarries for the night rather than joy that comes with the morning. But hopefully we can experience a wise joy that comes through these biblical texts when we face powers in our world or our lives that we believe are evil and at times in which we deeply disagree with one another. In presenting the story of the seven sons of Sceva scurrying from an evil spirit who has recognized and called out an evil spirit within them, Luke helps us approach the power of evil with some welcome but dark humor. We may have to loosen our minds a little bit to catch the slapstick in this story. Now, prior to the point in which we join the story, the Apostle Paul has been on a journey to take the explosive explosive and inspiring power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ into the Greco-Roman world. With a handful of colleagues, Paul has spent two years in Ephesus, a coastal city, rich in resources, located on the western edge of present-day Turkey. About a quarter of a million people live in Ephesus when Paul arrives, ranking it behind Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch as the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Think Houston. Think Phoenix. Think Philadelphia. Not in the top three, but close. Paul and his colleagues have made Ephesus a center of their operations, and on a regular basis, Paul speaks publicly at synagogues and at a local secular meeting meeting hall known as the School of Tyrannus. Paul and his colleagues spend over two years preaching, teaching, building the community of the church in ways that are solid, but are less dramatic than what happens in our passage. But Luke also tells us that while doing these solid and undramatic things, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, 
Their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Like Paul, like Jesus, if only I can touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. Then Luke tells us that some itinerant Jewish exorcists try to use the name of the Lord Jesus to try to misuse the name of the Lord Jesus over those who have evil spirits. Luke even notes that seven, count them seven, sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva try to co-opt the powers of Christ for their own powers of magic. But the evil spirit in a man Paul is healing says to the sons of Sceva, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Who are you to do what Jesus did? Who are you to do what Paul is doing? Who are you to manipulate the Spirit of God for your own aims? Then the evil spirit leads the man that Paul is healing physically to leap onto the seven sons of Sceva. I don't know if he leapt on all seven of them at one time or if he did a serial leaping. It's kind of like the text that says Jesus rode into Jerusalem on two donkeys. Was he astride two or were they back and forth? We don't know, you know. These weren't the best newspaper reporters in the country, but they did okay. They did okay. But anyway, these seven sons of Sceva leap, leap onto, no, where am I here? (laughs) The man physically leaps onto the seven sons of Sceva and he masters them and so overpowers them that they scurry out of town wounded and naked. I hadn't really heard of this story before. I guess I knew it was in the Bible, but it's, it's a pretty colorful story. We, story. We just don't teach it in Sunday school very often. <laughs> now, as you can imagine, even though Ephesus has a quarter of a million people living in it and promises some of the anonymity of city life, seven sons of a leading local religious figure fleeing town wounded and naked is a bit too much to go unnoticed. In fact, Luke says, everyone was awestruck. I bet they were. And then he adds, the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Then Luke narrates that many people were moved to confess and disclose their own practices of magic They go to their homes, they clean out their closets, they bring back to the public square instruction books and manuals of magic that they have used over the years. There is a community bonfire that leads to an old-fashioned book burning. Someone looks around and places the value of the books at 50,000 silver coins, which no scholar knows exactly how much that is, but 50,000 coins of silver in any currency. It's a lot of money. Luke then concludes the story with triumphant understatement. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed.
Now, in the slapstick of this story and in the easy alliteration of Seven Sons of Skeva Scurrying, I love that title. People in the office who put the title up on the board had to search and scurry for enough S's for that. But it's easy for us to assume that this is a story in which the power of good overcomes the power of evil. But a detail that we need to notice is that it is actually the power of evil in one man that Paul is healing that recognizes a similar power of evil in the sons of Sceva and sends them to their scurrying. It is neither Paul nor the word of God nor the Holy Spirit that drives out evil. Rather, the power that calls out the evil spirit in the sons of Sceva is an evil spirit in an unnamed man who has come to Paul for healing. In this story, it is evil defeating evil that allows the good to prevail. And this is the point that I want to spend a few minutes with. Seriously. (laughs) I want to say at the outset that the use of the word evil can be fraught with, on the one hand, the danger of overstatement and exaggeration, and on the other hand, the danger of naivety. To label something as evil is often to end a conversation about it. But not to recognize something as evil is often to avoid the reality and evade the truth beneath the name. It can represent a failure to trust Jesus' oft-quoted phrase, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. One evil in the story before us is an evil spirit that lies behind the disease of the man who was brought to Paul. The other is the desire of the seven sons of Sceva to use whatever healing power Paul has for their own aims. Now there are doubtless other forms of evil in our lives and in our world. Personal Spiritual, sexual, financial, social, political. In judging people and events that come before us, we have to ultimately decide for ourselves what deserves the title of evil and what does not. Once we have made that decision, we must then decide as a matter of conscience and a matter of pragmatism how to deal with the evil that we have decided exists. In this story, the power of evil inhabiting the man recognizes and defeats the power of evil in the seven sons of Sceva. The picture is one of evil folding back on itself, devouring itself, failing of its own accord, imploding. But evil devouring itself is not the only way that the older New Testaments depict the triumph of good over evil. 
Sometimes the temple simply must be stormed, the money changers driven out. But waiting for evil to implode is one of the ways that's found in the Bible. And that's the way in this text. Earlier in Acts, a Pharisee named Gamaliel had said, if this plan or undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overcome it. That is a positive way of saying that in the end, that which is evil will collapse of its own accord or be destroyed by an equally evil power that paves the way for good to prevail. I personally believe that there's a lot of truth to this. I have seen people who are destructive in their family, in politics, in the church, in schools, in organizations and community, in national and world history. I have seen some of them collapse under the weight of the evil they bear and carry out. The trouble is they do a lot of damage before the collapse, sometimes unspeakable damage. It's a judgment call on our part and sometimes on the part of world leaders whether or not they will collapse. And thus we cannot always adopt this wait-and-see posture in terms of facing evil. In a statement made famous in a bridge form by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., the abolitionist and reformer Theodore Parker said, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The ark is a long one, and my eye reaches but a short way. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of my own sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, Parker wrote, I am sure that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. Our faith in that bending and our belief that ultimately evil will be defeated is, as Parker says, a matter of judgment, a matter of conscience. But when we lean in that direction, such faith can be a source of hope, of resolve, and of action. As we wait for for the arc of justice to begin its bend or to get closer and closer to its destination. Because of this hope, our waiting for evil to collapse does not have to be passive. 
Notice in this chapter that Paul and his colleagues are not on the sideline waiting for the sons of Sceva to disappear on their own before they can do anything. Rather, they come to Ephesus, they spend two years, they preach, they teach, they establish relationships, they build a community on the ground. Then when the sons of Sceva are defeated, Paul and his colleagues have paved the way, they have provided a structure, and they are ready to step in and move the gospel further forward. They don't directly take on the sons of Sceva themselves, but they provide the structure and the presence in which that opposition can occur, in which God's full word and way can prevail, and in which the future is open for the more equitable bending of the moral arc of the universe. The two important points in my life, one personal and one professional, I have been in the throes of what I consider to be evil. During those bleak times, I did what I could around the edges to lessen its destruction, but mostly I tried to stay grounded and not flee. I often repeated to myself what I learned in Sunday school, deliver me from evil. Deliver me from evil. Deliver me from evil. Because it is a judgment call made in conscience, whether or not to storm the temple or wait for evil to collapse of his own accord, I never try to judge people who take evil on more directly than I do. In many ways, I admire and envy them. But the experience that has been most true to me is to wait for the sons of Sceva to implode and scurry out of town. In some instances, I am able to make that choice because I live in this country, because I'm male, because I'm white, and because I'm privileged, less threatened, than most of the world's population. My stance of waiting doesn't mean that a lot of people haven't been hurt, myself included, as I or we have waited for justice to unfold. It doesn't mean that the moral arc of the universe has not been ever so slow in its bending toward justice, but for the most part, I've been fortunate enough to stay alive and to be present to see the sons of Sceva scurry and the way of God begin to prevail. And for that, all I know is to be grateful, attentive, living on the cusp between waiting and action, action and waiting, reasonably confident that in the promise and providence of God, the sons of Sceva will scurry out of town, not always soon and very soon, but sometimes, sometimes soon enough. Amen.